Howdy. It is good to be in a season or a day of victory. Am I right? Aggie's just one, people. Come on. And we also have victory through the power of God. So let's, uh, yeah. So it is two wins. All right, two wins. You can always count them at least two wins. Hey, if you have a Bible, we are in a series in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, would love for you to flip to Romans chapter 8. Uh, if this is your first time at a church service, let me just say I'm so glad you are here. And, uh, and I'm, man, it's an honor, honor, honor to be here in this place and, uh, and be able to teach the Word of God uh, in this moment. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And I'll just say this at the start. This is my favorite section of of Romans, and maybe my favorite section of the Bible. I don't know if I can commit to that yet, but probably my favorite section in the book of Romans. I don't know that this will be my favorite sermon, but it will be my favorite passage, and so I am going to be uh, a little overly animated, if that's okay for you this morning. You all right with that? A little bit of energy? Uh, Last, last a little announcement piece I want to give you guys. Um, we actually have a, a version um, small group or a personal devotional study that you can do. And so if you jump on our version app, download this. It's called Living Free. And uh, you can dig in throughout, um, I don't know, the rest, maybe even over the break when you guys go over uh, for your Thanksgiving and maybe have some time uh, to get in a devotional when you're not studying or cramming for finals and to get some time with the Lord uh, in that. So... That being said, let's jump to uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It says this. Sorry, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him give graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as is written? For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you so much for an encouraging passage, an encouraging section of Romans. We know that... um, that you love us with a, a love that is, uh, that is so beyond our comprehension. It is a love that loves us in spite of us. Even when we are not at our best, you love us. Even when we are not all that we should be, you love us. So Lord, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, as we look at this passage in this section, we might be able to really see the implications of your love. And Lord, walk in confidence, walk in security, 
walk in hope because of the love that you loved us with. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1933, construction began on what we know today as the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a bridge that spans uh, in San Francisco, connecting uh, San Francisco to Marin County, California. And it spans almost two miles. It's the building, uh, it's the Golden Gate Bridge that, that is, is famous. It's, it's beautiful. It's actually even majestic as you look at it in that picture. But what you may not be familiar with is what it took to actually construct this bridge. As they were building this bridge, there was a lot of concern in the construction because if you've ever been to San Francisco, you'll know two things about San Francisco. One, it's crazy. Uh, And two, it's cold. Uh, Mark Twain said famously, um, the coldest summer, or the, uh, what did you say? Uh, The coldest winter I ever experienced was a summer in San Francisco, right? So uh, it's there, and it gets down to 40 degrees when the fog rolls in. It's a beautiful area, but the weather is actually crazy. And those winds can can gust at at several, um, I don't know, 50 miles an hour, 40, 50 miles an hour, and and, and can knock people literally off the construction project. And so when you're off uh, connecting on the middle of kind of an ocean area, and you're trying to connect, build a bridge, these winds will go up, it uh, gusts up, and it's very uh, cold there. And so there was a concern as they were building it, how can we make sure that people don't die? Because it's so high, and it would fall into freezing icy water. If you're like, hey, I should go surfing in California. Not in Northern California. You know, it's cold and bitter, and, and you've got to wear that huge wetsuit. So you're like, what's California like? It's beautiful in the south. Uh, in the north, it is beautiful, but frigid. And, and so they're like, how are we going to protect people along this way? And so um, they actually, several people actually lost their lives before they built something that was ingenious at the time, and it was this, a net. And you're like, that seems obvious, Kevin. Well, not in the 1930s. <laughs> so they were normally just walking as that one guy is across, just trying to like balance his way across and build a bridge. And they realized, hey, people are not safe if we do this. Let's, let's actually construct a net that will catch the people so they won't fall to their doom. And what they discovered as soon as they kind of built this net uh, beneath the people is that, is that the work increased. People worked more quickly because they knew that they were safe in this place. But not only that, it actually saved the lives of several people um, that were blown off in the construction project and kind of caught them um, and, and saved so many lives as a part of this construction project. So, so why do I tell you that? Well, uh, we've come to a portion in the book of Romans where I would call, what I would call it is this. It's the beautiful safety net of God. And the beautiful safety net of God is this. The love of God. That one of the major verses in this passage that just jumps out to my mind. Hopefully it jumps out to your mind. And it's this. In verse 39 it says this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I've heard it said like this, that the love of God is like a rope that we can cling to as we walk across the precipices of life. 
That the love of God could actually hold us and secure us as we walk through the challenges that life that comes our way as we walk through life. It is something that will hold us secure. It is like a net. It is like a rope that we can actually cling to, not just as believers that, that come to Jesus as in faith, but as someone that walks with God through the difficulties of life. And let me tell you this. What we're going to see in this passage is this, that the Christian is not immune to life's challenges. In fact, the Christian will experience all the same difficulties that everyone in the world experiences. There is pain ahead of your life and my life. Happy. But what we can have is hope and security in the midst of the pain. And I want to show you three ropes, three guidelines of God's love that we can actually hold on to that demonstrate how God's love works in our lives. And the first Peace is this, that God's love gives us purpose in the pains of life. It gives us purpose through life challenges. Secondly, it gives us comfort in the midst of life's challenges. And thirdly, it gives us security. It can give you purpose, comfort, and security through the inevitable challenges you will face in life. And let me tell you what, if you don't hold on to God's love for purpose and comfort and security, nothing else in this world will give it to you. Because everything, every one of us will face pain and tragedy and trial that will make us go, I don't understand why. But the love of God can give you an understanding of the purpose and comfort and security through the difficulties we'll all face in life. And the first thing that Paul lays out in this first section is this. It's the purpose to life's challenges. You can actually believe and actually know there is purpose in every challenge that you face. In fact, in verse 28, he says it this way. And we know, we can know this. We can, we can hold on to this. We can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What he says is this. We know that every circumstance of your life is woven together in a tapestry that is ultimately good. Every pain we experience, every challenge we face is woven together by God in a tapestry that is ultimately good. Now, there are black threads in that weaving. There are dark times in that weaving. But we can know everything is actually brought together for good. And if you don't believe that, if you push against that, you do have alternatives. And so what I want to give you um, in this next little moment is, is the alternative perspective, an alternative perspective you can have to, to a lack of purpose in the pain we face. Because not everyone believes there's actually purpose in the pain. Not everyone believes that there's actually lo- the love of God that... that superimposes itself over the pains of life. And I want to give you one perspective from secular atheism. I'm going to read you several quotes in a row that give you an overall perspective of one option to hold on to if you do not believe that that God actually has purpose in the pains of life. Jerry Cohn says it this way. He's a biologist. He says this, Being an atheist means coming to grips with reality. So this is one perspective. And the reality is twofold. We are going to die as individuals, 
And the whole of humanity, unless we find a way to colonize other planets, is going to go extinct. So there are lots of things we have to deal with that we don't like. We just come to grips with reality. Life is the result of natural selection and death the result of natural selection. We are evolved in such a way that death is almost inevitable. So we just deal with it. And so that is one perspective. If there's no purpose, what that means is you just got to deal with it. Face reality. There is no grander purpose for the cancer or disease or the death or the genocide. Anything that comes across our world, there's no greater purpose. Our response is merely just grit your teeth and deal with it. Swallow that hurtful pill because that's reality. There's another perspective. I'll kind of give you, they they put a little rosier spin on it. Um, Adam Rutherford, he's a geneticist. He says this, a meaningless universe does not mean we live our lives without purpose. I'm an atheist, and as much as uh, the word means, I don't see any evidence or need for the supernatural. But I try to live my life replete with purpose. I be, I'm kind, to be kind, to learn, and discover as much as you can. Share that knowledge, relieve suffering when you can, have tons of fun. That's why it's not pointless. We have the power to create life and to show those lives wonder. Surely that's enough. It is for me. And so another perspective on it is, hey, just do the best you can with what you have. That's what he's saying. There's no meaning out there. There's no grander meaning for the pain. But, but what we can do is just do the best we can with what we have. So that means we can encourage and relieve suffering where we can. And so, and so that's another kind of piece of this, this atheistic picture. Like, hey, I can just do the best with what I'm given. There's no grander design, but I can do the best with what I've got. But it goes on. There's, there's other perspectives on this. And so there, I read an article um, by a person named Marcelo uh, uh, Glazier. I believe it's a man, but I'm not positive. Um, And it's asking the question, does life have a purpose? And I'm going to read you her larger um, ideas, and then I'll read you her her most specific quote. He says this. She says this. Or he, see, I don't know, Marcelo. (laughs) Does life have a purpose? This individual says... I don't mean our private lives, our personal choices, our hopes, the plans we make along the years. I imagine that each of us, um, each and every one of us, believes our lives have a purpose or many. What I mean is life as a natural phenomenon, the strange assembly of matter endowed with um, autonomy capable of absorbing energy from environments and preserving itself. All life forms have one essential purpose, survival. If the environment changes uh, drastically, life will respond, either by dying or for those species that survive through mutations that will drive radical changes in short periods of time. Then they says this. The lesson... Oops. I lost things. I'll read you the quote. The lesson from life is simple. In nature, creation and destruction dance together. But in this choreography, there's no choreographer. In, in life, nature, creation, and destruction dance together. But in this choreography, there's no choreographer. Meaning, there's no ultimate point or purpose to all the pain we face. And sometimes you take a dip, and sometimes you take a spin. But there's no grander purpose, and inevitably, you just deal with it. 
Richard Dawkins, I've read his quote earlier um, this semester, but I think he puts it most plainly and most clearly. He says this, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, here we go, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason or, for it, or any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but, bl- but pitiless indifference. And I'm like, okay. Okay. If I don't believe that there's a grand designer weaving all the purposes of life together for some grander purpose, what it means is I'm left to swallow the pill that there's no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I love the honesty of Richard Dawkins. Because if there is no purpose, there is an alternative to believe in. I can hold on to the fact that there is no purpose. But I want to give you another framework That God actually has purpose in our present. That God actually is weaving all things together for good for those he loves that are called according to his purpose. That God actually, according to verse 28, does have purpose in the pain. And we're going to see lots of pains through the rest of this passage. But God actually does have purpose. And I'm going to give you three reasons, three um, alternative viewpoints for why God allows evil and corruption pain in the world. I think this is going to be really helpful. The first reason is this, that evil is a corruption of good. Meaning, all disease, all evil, all death, etc. scream out that life shouldn't be this way. There's a quote from Professor Douglas um, Javet. He's from the Talbot Theological School, uh, Talbot School of Theology. And he says this, evil is a deviation from the way things ought to be. But there can't be a deviation from the way things ought to be unless there is also a way things ought to be. There can't be a way things ought to be unless there is a design, a plan that says how things ought to be. And there can't be a design plan that says how did things ought to be unless there is a designer who put forth that design plan. He says evil is a corruption of what's good. So a hand is a good thing. A hand that punches someone, that's a bad thing. It didn't make the hand bad, it made the action bad. And so, so he says there's a designer for things, how things should be. The second thing is this, so evil points to a designer actually. Um, secondly is this, that God allows freedom of choice. God doesn't stop every bad thing from happening. And so he gave you fists and he gave you a mouth. And those are Hands, in and of themselves, are great things. You can hug, you can pat, you can high-five, you can do like cool little hand you know, things, you know, like you can do that, right? But you can also do it to form a fist or a slap or create things that are destructive in the world. Like we can use our hands for good or we can use them for bad. And God actually doesn't stop every bad action. I just thought about this for a moment. What if, if my hands were about to do something bad and he turned them into marshmallows at the moment they were doing something bad? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this text and all of a sudden marshmallows. Like, I can't do anything. Like, but God doesn't do that. He allows you in your freedom of choice to do what's wrong. And, and he does the same thing with your mouth. You can speak words of life, or you can speak words of death. 
You can encourage people. And God says, I'm going to actually allow you to make those decisions. So evil is a derivation from what's good. God allows freedom. That's why we see pain in the world. Thirdly, God leaves us with the ability to make pain or to experience challenges. Thirdly, it says this by C.S. Lewis, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He says if God wouldn't leave pain in the world or destruction or disease, and he would literally stop everything from happening, what it would show is that you don't need God anyway. And leaving what's wrong allows us to look up, to say, I long for a grander purpose. I long for an end to this. I am screaming out for a solution to the pain that we feel. God actually has purpose in the pain. And it says that God works all things together for good. He says, I'm going to work every pain you experience for a good. And, and sometimes it can become very difficult to go, Kevin, I just don't know. Because this person got cancer, or I see this disease, or this natural disaster. Like, I just don't know. And I said, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. But I'm going to give you one biblical character that demonstrates the thread of this very, very well. And he's the biblical character of Joseph. So Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis, he had several older brothers. And he was the younger brother. And he went to check on his older brothers who were watching the flocks of sheep. And he goes out to check on them like a little reporter to report back to daddy back home. And he goes there and his brothers go, oh, there's the dreamer. He has these dreams from God, and he's got daddy's like nice coat on, so daddy loves him more than us. And so they said, here's what we're going to do to this chump. We're going to take him, and we're going to kill him. And so they capture him, and they throw him into the pit, and then the brothers kind of debate, what are we going to do with this dude? And so they're arguing, and so one brother says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. That's better, right? And so they sell him as a slave to Potiphar. And then they take his coat, they rip it in two, they dip it in blood, and they take it back to the dead. And they're like, hey, he's gone. I'm so sorry. Here's his coat, and, and we can move on. And if he's out of the way, our daddy will love us. It's pretty dark and twisted. Welcome to the Bible. <laughs> and he gets into Potiphar's house, and he does well there. And he kind of raises in promise and popularity, and, and things are going better in his life. And then suddenly he's falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife who keeps on throwing herself at him. And immediately Potiphar takes him and he sticks him into prison. It's the lowest point of his life as he's sitting there in prison, forgotten. He kind of works his way up in that organization. He hopes he can get out. And then he's he kind of thrown back down. He's kind of forgotten. He's left there for years. So finally he's out, he interprets this dream, he gets out, and he goes into the, the court of Potiphar's house, and he's brought into that moment, and he's literally leading all of Egypt, because he came up with this amazing plan. And so he's literally leading all of Egypt in the midst of this famine. His brothers experience the famine, and they come to Egypt because they hear Egypt has food they can sell. And suddenly he sees his brothers come in while he's sitting there, in the court of the king. And what do you think Joseph can do in that moment? This is revenge, baby, right? 
Like, it's too late to apologize, right? The old school reference. Um, like, you can't. He had the opportunity to move in retribution. But later on in his interaction with his brothers, he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. You wanted evil. I'm not going to call it anything else. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive and they are today. So why did Joseph go through all of this turmoil of rejection, of slavery, of, 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 of all of these issues? He says, I, I don't know why God did it this way, but I know this. That their evil was not the end of my story. What they intended for evil, God allowed their sin to be brought for his greater purposes. And enabled me to save all of Israel from starvation and famine. He used what was intended for wrong for his own good. So God in his grand tapestry, the dark strands are woven to something better. And the greatest example is this, is the cross of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He was innocent and he was brought to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was was brought there beaten and whipped and nailed to the cross. And and what's crazy in that moment is that as he's being nailed to the cross, he looks at the people and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter and Acts will talk about this moment. He says, look, according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God, you nailed him to the cross. So which is it? God's plan or their responsibility? And beautifully, Peter says both. What you intended for evil, God brought about for good for his greater purposes. To save the world. And here's the truth. I don't know why all the strands are weaving together like they are, but I do know this. That God works all things together for good for those he loves that are called according to his purpose. Okay, so there's a bit of a caveat there. Who's called according to his purpose? How do we know? Well, for God's kids, I'll say this. He's committed to your future. He is purposeful in your present struggles. And he is committed to the future he's bringing you to. He says in this in this chapter... Verse 29 and 30 says this. Those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And he literally lays out a progression of how he works in the life of his kids. He says, I foreknew, meaning I I knew you before you were even born. Jeremiah says this, that he he knit me together. That, that before I was born, he knew where I was. And for David, he says, he knit me together in my mother's womb. I, I knew who I was forming before they were even formed. I foreknew them. And it's this intimate knowledge of, of you and who you are. He says, I knew what you would be like even before you were born. I foreknew. I knew what you were going to be like. And I predestined you. Meaning, I carved out a path for your life. I knew what was coming. And I carved out this path specifically. And then I called you. I called you to myself. Well, how do you know if you're called? You're in the room. How do you know if God loves you? He brought you here. 
He introduced you to that friend. Maybe he puts you to those parents. Maybe he did these different things. God does all sorts of different things. And then he gives you an opportunity to hear about his love for you. And he calls you. He woos you to himself. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for everything that we willingly do wrong, he says, now I justify you. It means he forgives everything that you've ever done or will do. Everything is wiped clean. And he says, I'm going to glorify you. What does that mean? It's the, the culmination of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of making us more like Jesus Christ. It's not only just less sin, but it's doing more of what's right in the world. Making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And the culmination of that will happen in glorification. And so, how do I know if I'm called? Like, how do I know if I'm in the in group? I'll tell you this. God has woven the circumstances of your life purposefully. And he is working your life toward a great end. Through all the difficulties, through all the trials... And how do you know if you're in? You simply believe. It's nothing that you do. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in England, and he says it this way. I believe in the doctrine of election, this idea that God calls and moves us along this journey, because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. So who's picked, who's in and who's out? Simply those people that believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's That's who he knows. He's coming to him. So God has purpose In your pain. And let me tell you this. If you believe that, that actually gives you great endurance. You can endure the challenges that are coming in life. But secondly, God gives us comfort in the midst of life challenges through his love. It says this in verse 31 through 38. We're going to have to run through this, people. Buckle up. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us, graciously give us all things? What he says is this, I'm going to comfort you with my love. First of all, to know there's freedom in feeling that you're never alone. He asked the question in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? You never have to be alone. You are never alone isolated when God is with you. And I'll tell you what, there's so many moments in life when you feel alone. My eight-year-old son felt it recently. We sent him to public school, which sometimes is a safe place, but not on the playground. You know, like playground land for young kids, that's like where like the knives and shivs come out. You know, you just don't know... (laughs) What's happening in public school in the playground? And he's playing soccer with some buddies out there. And, and they're kind of going around. And then there was this one kid that shoved my son Micah to the ground. And, and, he's, and, and he came um, later that day. And he's like crying to me. He's like, he's like, that kid, like I was just running after the ball. And he shoved me to the ground. I'm like, I'm like Micah, who, who do I need to kill? Like who's... <laughs> 
And like, well, what happened next? You tell the teacher, like, what happened? And, and he's like, no, then John came over. And I'm like, well, what did John do? Now, John's his little buddy. He's been friends with for a couple years. And, and we just have like this deep love for little John. He's like, John came over and he shoved that kid down. <laughs> and then John said, if you push us again, us, I'm going to shove you down again. Now, I'm not advocating violence. (laughs) But I'm like, oh, John. You are now my best friend, right? And the reason I tell you that story is not so you shove down friends for friends. Um, Is that when you feel alone, there's something beautiful when someone comes to help. There's something beautiful when someone stands alongside you and says, hey, that was rough. I'm here with you. And when the world feels like it's against you to have someone beside you saying, I am with you through the storms of life. And God says, I am that. I am that rope. I can comfort you in the midst of life's challenges so that you never feel alone. I can give you confidence to trust me in the midst of life's challenges. So how do I know? Well, you've got freedom from every accusation. You're not alone. You gotta, there's nothing going to separate us. And no one's going to accuse you of anything wrong. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Meaning, who's going to take me to court and show me the wrong that I've done? It's God who justifies. Meaning, God actually declared me righteous. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died in your place for your sins to completely forgive you this moment. There's no one that can accuse you of what's wrong and in a way that will condemn you. He can't happen if we believe in Christ. He's forgiven us. More than that, he was raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. See what he's saying? He's like, the king of the universe is the one who judges everyone. And he's already declared you innocent in Christ. And if ever an accusation comes, Jesus is sitting there with God going, and someone says, hey, you know what? Kevin was a total jerk yesterday, and I think we should kill him. And Jesus is sitting there going like, yeah, that's totally right. And I died for that. So it's covered. Like someone should punish, should be punished for Kevin's sins. Like that, someone should be punished. And I was. So that's good. Well, Kevin said that bad thing, and just that, that person was really hurt. Yet, yeah. and they come like Kevin is just a mean person, and Jesus is sitting there going, "Yeah, dude, like we need to speed up his sanctification." <laughs> but I paid for that one too. Well, like in ten years, Kevin's going to do something else that's that's not nice to people, and Jesus is going to go, "Yeah," and I, I covered that too. No one has an accusation against you. You're never alone. And no accusation, no lie you believe is actually real. It will not condemn you. Because God is the God who judges the universe. And he says, I declared them innocent through my son. And love of God gives us the third piece. Security in life's challenges. Circumstances. No circumstance we face will ever separate us from the love of God. And so Paul says in this last section, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Like, what if I have a bad day? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm a jerk? What if 
can anything? What, what, what if there's all this trial that comes against my life? What if, what if I, I have all sorts of issues that I face? What about any of those? Well, Paul says, look, I've been through all of those and more. And so he asks the question, shall tribulation, what's the answer? I don't, I don't know. Can anything separate from the love of Christ? The answer is no. So you're going to respond that way. Shall tribulation... Or distress. you got all these exams coming up. Like all of these like distressing realities. Shall that separate you from the love of Christ? No. Or persecution. What if like people hate me because I'm a Christian and they're not nice to me? Shall that separate you from the love of Christ? No. Or famine. What if you can't eat for forever, ever again? And you're like, I can't imagine that. My life is full. But what if, what if it happened? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? I don't know about this next one. <laughs> I love that he just throws it in there, like, or nakedness. And you're like, what, what's happening in this culture? Like, I don't, these naked people are, no, God loves them too. You're like, I don't know what's, what's happening. But I think he's talking about someone in complete destitution. No. Or danger. Or sword. As it is written, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to slaughter. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors to him who loved us. Nothing can separate you from God's love. There is no circumstance that can separate you from the love of God. And Paul literally experienced every one of these. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was rejected, and none of them separate from God's love. And circumstances can't diminish God's love. You having a good day or a bad day, God still loves you. Holy. He says, I'm sure that neither... Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Nor height, nor depth, in anything, anything, anything. There's something that's incredibly securing when you believe that kind of love. It can make you sore. Mark Galley says this, God's love for us is uncoerced, And so freely given that it doesn't demand a response. But so freely is it given that it creates freedom in the recipient so that our response is not one of obligation or duty, nor the returning of a favor, but uncoerced love. He loves you so much, the only natural response is to love. Mary DeMuth says this, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing either living nor dead nor angel or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable, unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Christine Kane, I love this. Life is too short. The world is too big. And God's love too great to live ordinary. You know what God's love should ultimately do for you? If you know there is purpose in every pain, if there is comfort in every heartache, and there is security in every situation that you cannot lose the love of God, what it should make us willing to do is to risk. If we are secure, that means we can serve. If we are loved, that means we have a lot of resources to give. I ask you, do you know the love of God? Have you put your faith wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of everything that you've done wrong? And have you trusted in him? 
And then secondly, have you let these realities of God's love drop from your head down into your heart? Do you actually look at the circumstances of life and say, man, I, I, I think God is weaving a grander purpose in this. Have you allowed him to comfort you in the midst of the negative thoughts and accusations that come your way? And have you trusted in him securely? Nothing that happens is going to separate me from the love of God. He's got me. And so I can step out in love and risk because he's loved me. Pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for the love that you have displayed in Christ Jesus. And Lord, it was more than we deserve. So Lord, I pray that as we think about the love of God, you would help us to let those truths drop from our head as ideas to our heart to realities. And Lord, I pray that you would help anyone here that is unsure, that is searching for whether or not you are real and that you have purpose in the world, that they would find it in you. And Lord, I pray if there's people that need comfort in the midst of the storms of life or the accusations that fall, that you would give them comfort knowing your love. And Lord, I pray as we walk through the challenges of life, we would be secure. That we know you, that your love doesn't change even though our circumstances may be tough. Thank you so much, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, let's stand. Let's respond. Knowing we have security and a hope in Jesus Christ.